Cannabis Business Minds, we train and mentor professionals, entrepreneurs, and aspiring entrepreneurs on how to confidently find their place in the legal cannabis and hemp industries. Come on and join us at CannabisBusinessMinds.com. Before we get into kind of the meat and potatoes of it, I was hoping you could just give an overview for the listeners and everybody about your journey in cannabis. Yes, you've been, you've been in it for a minute and you've seen so much and just kind of giving an overview of what you've been able to do, why you got in and, and start with that. Yeah. Okay. So obviously I'm from Northern Ireland originally. Um, I live here in Worcestershire in the UK. Um, I went to university in Bangor, North Wales, which is a, you know, lovely part of the world with the mountains and the sea, studied biological oceanography, um, and I, you know, spent a lot of time, unfortunately, playing football, playing drums in a band, um, you know, and maybe did partake in, in a little bit of uh, <laughs> recreational activities. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I didn't do great in my degree, but I, I still got a degree um, mm-hmm. that was, you know, graduating from university. I met my wife there. She's a music graduate. And I kind of had the choice of moving back to sort of a small town in Northern Ireland or um, moving with my, with my partner at the time and so that's what I decided to do so we moved here to Bromsgrove and um, was just looking for a job I, like I worked in in a, in a bookies for like a few months while I was mm-hmm. looking and was lucky to find a job in a laboratory working for a company called RMC uh, they were subsequently bought out by Semex so one of the biggest construction companies in the world and it was in their national technical center uh, doing product compliance testing for every sort of quarry and um, asphalt plant in the country, as well as doing, you know, new product development and other things, compliance testing, you know, there's a, there's a major motorway here in, in the UK, um, the M6 tow road, which is like a, a big motorway section and, and Semex did a lot of the work on that. So we did all the compliance testing yeah. stuff associated with that. And when I left, they give me a little core sample and stuff, but, you know, still have that. But it's a, I think for me that that's interesting that you can, when you're you sort of have a, a grinding in science and technology, um, yeah. there are always things to be, um, things can always be interesting. So whatever you kind of look to get involved in, when when you have that under, underpinning of science, um, you know, there are lots of things that we take for granted in life. Mm-hmm. And when you kind of really get into the technical details of how something is, is constructed and, and put together, you know, we all drive a car every day. Most of us, you know, driving around, we take that stuff for granted. But, you know, it's it's uh, it's a big business, and you know, there's there's a lot technically and scientifically involved in in that. And nowadays, you know, with the drive to sustainability, and you know, talking about industrial hemp materials, for example, you know, yeah. how those materials can feed into that sector to to produce more sustainable materials, but that still, you know, deliver you know, a, a road system that can, you know, survive for like a hundred years, you know? So. Yeah. And I think that's a good point of just even thinking about when you come from a science or a logical or more kind of like factual logical base. It's like, you're learning how to think about the process and underlying why and yeah. being able to transpose that from one industry to another, it's not as hard. Right. Yeah. And so w- when I, I moved from Semex to Bureau of Veritas, which is a more commercial operation mm-hmm. um, as, as, as an external test house. And so that sort of gave me, a, like, I'd, like I'd worked in retail, you know, clothes shops, supermarkets on the tills, right? So I've done sort of retail jobs before, worked in the par- bars and pubs and stuff. Yeah. So I kind of always had that consumer facing 
um, background in my younger life working. Um, so, you know, moving to that role in the testing sphere was, wasn't really too much of a stretch, but it just gave me a different understanding of, you know, margins and volume and testing, contract testing, where you have maybe a seven day turnaround, like you have to get it out or you get here, you know, the company's not paying you for that work, yeah. even though you've done it. So it was just a different experience. And then unfortunately, when the recession hit in 2008, a lot of the house building, you know, disappeared. And mm. a big part of the business was concrete testing from foundation work and stuff. And so unfortunately it was middle management and they were, you know, they had to cut numbers. So I got cut yeah. and it was a difficult time because, you know, my training was my sort of degree was biological oceanography. There aren't any jobs in that really. Yeah. And, you know, with the construction industry on its backside, it was sort of a concerning time. And so it was, you know, a friend of mine suggested looking at sales roles because he thought I had, you know, a good personality for that. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think I applied for like a hundred and, something 150 jobs in three weeks right like it was like we had a mortgage to pay you know i was going to do whatever it took to to make sure that we we covered our bills and you know so applied for a lot of jobs and i saw this tiny advert in the local newspaper the rugby advertiser (laughs) where we lived at the time which like i never read that stuff right yeah (laughs) when you need a job like you're scarring you're looking for everything yeah so so yeah saw that and it was a tiny little advert for a sales rep 20,000, you know, 20K with a vehicle. And I was like, I'll apply for that. Yeah. And because of my background, you know, this was the company called Hydro Garden, who were one of the, the biggest um, hydroponic wholesale companies in Europe, okay. um, certainly in this sector. And so I didn't know anything about it. Um, the recruiter called me back, said, look, this is the company. Um, they said they want me to interview. Um, fine. So and she said, the sales director just want, wants you to know it's kind of associated with cannabis. And I was like, fine that's, that's okay with me. <laughs> one I need a job and two like I you know I have some experience so <laughs> fine. um yeah and, and it was like interesting you read the website right and it's all very clean it's all about growing vegetables and all that stuff mm-hmm. and then you know when I went into the interview they kind of explained a bit more about the, the business and I was like yeah like you know I needed a job so I, I was fine with it yeah. give me yeah. the job on the spot which was great and, you know, within a, within a week of sort of spend some time in the office, learning about the different systems they're selling, all that kind of stuff. They just said, like, crack on, get on the road. Yeah. And so it did. And, and it was really interesting. So that was 2008, right? That was my kind of first step into the industry in the green yeah. market. And look, it was very different back then. You know, this is the thing, right? Difference. Like people understand when in 2008, there was like, you know, there was a retail store, I think in Derby, which is like in the East Midlands of the UK. Okay. those guys had been raided by the police and had their business taken off them you know and it took like two years to resolve that case and in the end they were found to have not done any you know the the, the courts found in their favor and they were being prosecuted for a conspiracy to grow cannabis as a retail wow. store that were selling like you know for all we know maybe they, maybe they were involved somehow yeah. a lot of people some people in that sector potentially do have links in that respect, right? But you yeah. know, they, they couldn't prove it. So that was kind of the environment that I came into the industry in in 2008, where you did not talk about it. You know, when you went into a store, like you did not mention the word cannabis at all, ever. You know, and you like, you know, wow. wearing shirt and trousers, you were basically like, like people looked at you like you were the police, right? So mm-hmm. like, jeans and t-shirts, trainers, which I had to learn coming from like Semex and bureau veritas where it's sort of a more corporate feel and you're like well why you know i'm just i'm just look smart you know just trying to be 
you know, trying to look smart, but no, that's that's suspicious. So uh, that was kind of the environment. And it's very different now. It's so so bizarre in a way to be where we are now, like yeah. just in North America, but like even in Europe where it's, you know, Germany last week, the, the parliament announced that they're going to, you know, implement a bill to, to legalize cannabis, which is just massive. That's so crazy. Yeah. Quickly, because like, and it's interesting because you went from kind of doing compliance management to then sales. That was a new skill set for you. A huge, like, <laughs> I can't, like, yeah. So I've always had, I mean, through the years, um, once I kind of stepped out of that sector and get into the sales world, yeah. Um, you know, my manager, Alison, at the time, Heidi Gordon, who was just amazing. She was so supportive. And she, you know, pointed me in the right direction in terms of websites or materials to to kind of read and educate myself. And so it was kind of self-taught, really. But yeah. I understood, started to understand different sales systems like the spin system and stuff where, you know, there's different approaches you can take, you know, to. And, and also I started to understand a little bit personality, like body language and the importance of these things. Right. And that's just really like educating myself through that process. And I was lucky enough to be in a sector that was growing rapidly and so uh, it's kind of like you know it hit any flaws i guess because yeah. the sales were increasing generally mm. just for context in the when the recession happened in 2008 probably i don't know it must have been like anywhere from fifty thousand plus people lost their jobs in the construction sector mm. and so like like myself but obviously manual laborers right yeah laborers that you know the house building just like crumbled so a lot of these people were out of work they maybe had a little bit of redundancy money. And so I was like driving around the north of all around the north of the country. And the stores were going, oh, yeah, we got lots of new customers coming in. <laughs> well, there was lots of people that had like literally no other option yeah. um, really to make money than to do something like that. And so they'd maybe put 1,500 or 2,000 pounds into a grow setup and they'd, you know, produce, you know, four or 5,000 pounds over a two, three months period. And it was enabling them to feed their families and pay their mortgages. Yeah. yeah. So for me, like in the wider context as well, it sort of was it was really um, interesting in understanding the social context of the social harms associated with with cannabis, really. And so, wh where is the real harm in terms of this system where we're prosecuting people for using something that has its potential harms, but for the most part. You know, and so really, uh, we got to the point where, you know, probably three or four years ago, it was almost accepted that you could be growing 12 plants and very little was, you know, if you did get caught, very little would really happen because, you know, even the, the authorities, the, the kind of police on the ground, if you like, they understood that it was big groups that were doing it in large volumes, but yeah. also doing other things and, you know, people trafficking and all kinds of stuff. So you really, it was very clear where the kind of, where the the darker elements were and and you know because you being in that part of the industry where you're dealing with stores all around the country and their yeah. their customers are coming from you know whatever vietnam from Eastern all backgrounds and, you know, right like there's really you know and you know, there are people that are willing to do horrible things and so you have people that are chained up in houses being forced to grow cannabis you know they've they've maybe paid somebody 10 grand because they think they're like buying their freedom in Europe. But when they get here, they're like forced to like sit in a chain in a house to grow weed for a year. And then they get. Wow. Like, is that like, I mean, that 
it reminds me of some of more of the other types of trafficking, but is that actually like, are there police reports and all that stuff? Like it's pretty well known that's happening. in the... oh, Like it's not widely known in the public yeah. sphere because it's not because you don't it's... want to tell people about that. Well, you know, like, but that's where the real, that's from, that's why I'm talking about this yeah. real social harm, right? Yeah. Where people, you know, my wife is like really like viscerally um, resistant to like adult use cannabis and so that's like interesting for me to like have these conversations where yeah. early maturity she comes around to the idea that yeah you know might not like it but there are there is definitely like a negative to the current system where while you may feel protected and that it's considered illegal in reality you're not people that want to smoke will smoke and they'll find yeah. it what are they really buying and how is it produced and what are the consequences of that ultimately yeah right so you know that that i think is just interesting for us as a as an industry as well like i've seen you know i've seen people and i've posted on instagram and other things before where people are mm-hmm. talking about like the cannabis industry like we're all peace love and hippies like no you know, getting yourself on right like totally you, you, have, you have to have like you know i needed a job when i got into that sector at the you know in 2008 in this industry and but there are other people that run it because you know <laughs> that's what they were doing they were growing and then they kind of thought well why buy from a you know another store when i can start my own store and okay well i can wash my money through the store right like yeah. you know it's like they're pretty hardened criminals that are you know sort of somewhat key figures in that part of the industry so you know let's be realistic about what the, the ecosystem really is right i think that's i'm so glad that we're talking about that because there's especially like you and I met in what 2015, maybe 2016 at uh, the Canifest yeah. conference. But I mean, even when I got so you had already been seeing this stuff since 2008. A lot of it was, yeah. you know, illicit marker. You just don't talk about it. Yeah. And then there's been a whole now kind of movement with more capital injections and just yeah. different, more, more corporate people. But what you're saying is so important because that underlying, you know aspect of criminality still exists in a regulated market yeah very much so yeah yeah and look at and you know having been sort of since 2015 like we yeah. were one of the first, first companies to try and you know one of a very few number of people that were importing cbd products into the uk for retail back end of 2015 yes the home we- office had no idea what to do with it like we were emailing them they didn't know what to tell us and then the mhra in 2016 made an announcement that they were classing cannabidiol as a medicine, which was just nonsense. But, you know, it was going to meet with the MHRA rather than kind of avoiding them, went to meet with them and started to understand specialist medicines. And so kind of part of our business in that sector, you know, it was really an eye opener for me to think, oh, there's a whole section of uh, of medicines that, you know, where, where this stuff really fits and offers potentially a different way to do medicine yeah. in the future that's a lot more personalized and where you have, you know, marketing authorization is is clinical validation of of a prescribed recipe, mostly a single compound, but there are elements. You know, some products w- which are multi compound, yeah. and so that's happening. Some of the work we're doing with MGC now, where they have multi compound products. Yeah, but we, but we, I have to interrupt you only because we haven't talked about your transition. So you were yeah. heading up sales. What yeah. was that entrepreneurial moment where you're like, you know what? I have a great skill set. I'm going to do something on my own. Like, when yeah. did that happen for you? So I think it's an understanding, like, 
her, like sales mar- marketing is you know understanding like messaging to people yeah and so sales is kind of an element of of that as well right where you have to understand yourself yeah. and how you come across and then the, and the best way to approach the person standing in front of you that you're trying to sell to yeah and so for me it was kind of as i went through that process and and um was successful in building long-term relationships with people mm-hmm. um that you know i kind of looked at the people that were running Heidegarten at the time and I thought like you know I got a bit frustrated there was kind of I felt like there was a bit of a a glass ceiling at the time maybe that was just my perception but I decided to make a move somewhere else because it offered me the opportunity of you know a bit more ownership I thought like you you get to a point I think any entrepreneur gets to a point where they think I'm making money for somebody else yeah and so you're exchanging that for for a regular paycheck and Mm -hmm. while that is you know, to some, there are elements or, or jobs or industries where that's pretty like guaranteed, right? So if you're in, in the government sector, like you're a teacher, you're getting paid, you know, there's yeah. always work, right? You're yeah. solid, your pension's good. Like I, you know, I worked for Bureau Veritas. They're a massive global certification company. Like they did not have to let me go, but they did. They made me redundant. So yeah. while you'd think working for a base like Bureau Veritas, you're safe, you're not. Yeah. Yeah. To be fair, if I'd stayed at Cemex, I might have been safe, right? Like I hadn't never left there, I'd probably still be there now. Um, I'd probably be bored, but you know. I think you, I knowing you, I think you would be so bored. <laughs> <laughs> I would be by now, yeah. So, so there's an element of like your exchange, and you, you kind of like there's this payoff between: do you want to like create some freedom for yourself? Do you yeah. want to create value for yourself and for your family, which comes with a ton of risk, right? Like you might never make it happen, yeah. or there's you know you say like I'm happy just you know, kind of being an employee and guaranteed to some degree a guaranteed income, you know, at, at the end of the day. So I think that was the point where I realized, you know, I think that and, and you're looking at what you're getting paid and the value you're creating for the business too, right? That's yeah. when, you get, when you start understanding profit margin mm-hmm. uh, as a sales rep, you know, or sales manager, and you're like, mm-hmm. going, you know, then you start to think you're involved in new product development. What products are bringing through? How much mm-hmm. is it costing? What, what do we set the price out to be competitive? how we branded it, what's the messaging. You understand mm-hmm. the whole chain. You think, oh, geez, I can do all this stuff, right? Yeah. Actually, I'm creating loads of value and I'm getting paid whatever it is, like £27,000 a year. Yeah. And, you know, the company's just made a million pound or whatever, two million pound profit. Mm. Wait, let, let's kind and of rethink the bonuses, this. Like the bonuses went from like when I started was £250 a month, mm-hmm. right? When I left four years later, it was £50 a month. Oh, wow. So the bonuses weren't actually tied to dollars. They were just tied to. It was whatever they said. And, and like, I remember, you know, the best will in the world. It's like we, we had, you know, they had these targets and, you know, we were getting to like doing over like, I can't remember what the, uh, I think, yeah, it was like 1.5 million, I think, in a month. Right. And it was like, I remember talking, yeah, it's like, you know, we can really, we're like 100, 150 grand. We can really do this, you know, and you guys will all get an extra 25 pound a month, like 25 pound if we hit this target. And I'm like, the percentage just doesn't make sense. <laughs> the percentage you know, doesn't make sense. 150,000 pounds that, you know, that whatever it is, like, you know, 15% net profit. And yeah, you know, it's 25 quid each. Like, you know, just, not yeah. really, like other people, you know, fine. If you're paycheck to paycheck, like that extra 25 pound is meaningful you know that's good right like you can you can go you work hard you get your 25 pound that's okay when you get a bit older and a bit more experience you think 
Wait, there, there really? could be more. And also, I think what's really cool is that you developed a skill set to push revenue for the business. So then you, ha- you, I'm imagining when you decided to take that jump to, uh, you know, entrepreneur, you already knew you had, fi- you had the skill set that you knew you would need to sell, which is generating income for the business, not yeah. necessarily yourself at that moment, but yeah. is that one of the big things where you're just like, you know, I've got this skill set. Like, how did you, I guess, how did you, you knew there was this tipping point. You're like, okay, well, I could make more money. So that's one thing. But then how did you know what to dive into? Because well, I think so within that set, so it was like an opportunity came up for okay. like a group of people from Australia, Canada, um, wanted to, open a distribution company in the UK as a vehicle for their products. Mm-hmm. Um, and they hired somebody else as the kind of the the sort of managing director of the company that was, you know, that that didn't go great, but they hired me, me as one of the sales managers and I ended up taking over the company. Um, it was just a case of like looking for that new opportunity to, mm. to earn a bit more money and potentially have some ownership and, you know, a, a bit more control in the direction of the business. And so, yeah, that turned out to be a a lot more than I expected in terms of like, you know, very quickly within nine months, I was, you know, taking over the run of the company because of sort of fraudulent activity of the managing director they hired, which was extremely stressful, like being on the back foot, you know, learning to try and manage tight cash flow and dealing with a group of effectively shareholders slash investors that were, you know, really under, um, feeling negatively about the, the whole situation. Yeah. So, you know, that, that was like a, a massively steep learning curve for me that period in terms of, okay, running a business, managing your cash flow, trying to manage your shareholders slash investors and all that stuff. And so, you know, we kind of took the company from, I think it was, it did 325K in the first year. Mm-hmm. And then next year did 650. The year after that did 1.2. The year after that, it did 2 million. And so, like we we really grew the business quite rapidly, um, yeah. but ultimately, you know, it was we we wanted to take it further, but didn't quite work out with the with the the ownership and stuff. And so we, you know, and we'd started to uh, look at other areas of development, like the CBD products and other stuff, and and the medical area. So it, it was real, and that's a whole other like jump, you know, when you start to talk about that stuff and transitioning from understanding running a business, building it, you know, yeah, the like one of the key learnings was, you know, about, you know, being cash positive and, and building a business in in a really stable way that's within your means, um, you know, ultimately. Um, I, I think when you look at the cannabis sector, a lot of people are trying to grow businesses and, you know, where they're hiring huge teams and like relying on the investment to kind of, it's like that yeah. tech approach, right? Where yes. we're going to have 50 developers, we're going to like just build it if we build it, they'll come and we just need to keep like feeding the, you know, we need to keep building until eventually we hit that tipping point where we start getting mass adoption from the consumer market. That doesn't really work for me for like these, you know, consumer based. I agree. Like, well, consumer goods like um, ingestibles and, you know, drinks and things. It, I don't think it works the same way. Um, but let's talk about why, because that, that is something that I think we need to dispel to almost any startup is you can actually start generating revenue faster than you think. And the tech bubble, unless you're building crazy out infrastructure, which unfortunately for you probably know a little bit, you know, with some of your clients, like, yeah, you have to have a grow, a grow house to maybe an indoor facility to grow. But 
let's talk about really how you can get to profit faster so, and why why this is kind of an illogical way of thinking. Look, if you're if you if you want if you're looking at this sector and you think how do you know what what how do I enter this sector? Yeah. Right in a really light sort of a low cost way. MVP MVP model. Well, so it, uh, yeah, look, I think it's I think it's about if you, if you're you know what is your skill set for start right? So I know people that and we've worked with growers for the last four or five years in terms of helping them get licensed, offtake agreements, compliance, genetics, that kind of stuff. That is a long road to walk, and it is very capital heavy. And you know, I know some like one of my uh, suppliers, particularly in Portugal, is a, is an um, you know he's a cultivator mm-hmm. like, through his you know to, he used to grow fruits and stuff, so he knows that industry really well. He knows what he's doing commercially at scale. Like you get other people going into that trying to do it when they've got no cultivation experience, and like that's a recipe for disaster. You, you yeah. can hire a master grower, but if you don't really know that game yourself, then you're always like at a detriment to some of your competitors who have that experience. Um, so if, if you're looking at something that's a light way, light touch, you know, or sort of yeah. low, low investment, is really like the distribution piece or a brand retail piece. So it's kind of like, you know, distribution can be cost heavy yeah. um, because you need infrastructure, you need stock, you know, you need advertising materials and, you know, that kind of, so if you're like, there are multiple retailers in this space, it's certainly in Europe that doesn't really exist so much. So if you look at like CBD retail in the UK, it's mainly the large, you know, you have the big retail stores. It's a lot of work to get products listed with them. Yeah. costs a lot of money. It's very marketing heavy in terms of listing fees and promotions, etc. cetera. Yeah. There are smaller stores like, you know, vape stores. There are, small yeah. chain health food stores and stuff but that's that's a lot of leg work and you so need, much you need sales reps to cover that ground you need like a whole marketing strategy and you need to kind of build equity you know in the market for your brand for those guys to want to take it on so that there's some interest from consumers in your brand so there's a whole you know thing if you're going to do the distribution piece it's quite like a, and we can talk about it at a different time but the difficulties and the the kind of nuances around distribution that I feel are yeah. under, undervalued generally speaking but um I think developing a brand yourself mm-hmm. <clears throat> using like a contract manufacturer don't don't get into cultivation don't get into manufacturing they're very cost heavy if you yeah. have the money and that's what you want to like and you, you know your expertise in that area you've got cash you've got good investors that will back you then and you've got time to to kind of work in implement and, and sort of you know you've got two years to kind of get to the point where you're gonna have good cash flow um, and and good revenue then that's fine but like if you're looking at something that's sort of relatively easy to start up then you know you can go to a contract manufacturer um who has white label products or ready-made products and and you know stick a label on it exactly and, you know like you know and that's a really easy way and look that's the CBD market here in the UK mm-hmm. is very much that really there, there are hundreds of, of brands that exist in the market and people are retailing them through their own websites and on through, you know, and advertising on Facebook and selling them kind of within their local networks and friendships. And that, you know, that kind of sort of, that sort of setup can get, might generate 30, 30, 40 K a year. Right. Yeah. And if you're making like a 50% markup on the product from a retail point of view, well, guess what, you know, 40 grand a year, 20 grand in cash in your pocket with, you know, managing as a, as a startup business with 
you know, low taxes, all that kind of, there's a way you can keep your tax down with yeah. income, you know what I mean? So there's a way you can make like a second wage for yourself and then, you know, where does it go from there? So, so I think that's probably the, the easiest way for people to get into to any market um, and yeah. if, if that's what you have. But if you're going to do that, then it's thinking about what's the brand, like what does it mean to people? Why is it different? Why is someone going to want to buy? And look, in any market, you know, if you look at beer, yeah. so, you know, I go into a pub and I'm trying to choose, do I want Stella? Do I want Peroni? Do I want Prava? Do I want, but like, I'm, there are different, slightly different flavors, but like the end result is basically the same. So, you know, it's just about what I fancy, you know, at that moment in time. And maybe I have a preference over one because I slightly prefer that flavor. Maybe I like the fact that one of them's Belgian or one of them's Czech or one of them's, I'm just, oh yeah, I love those Czech. But, you know, whenever you buy into a story of a brand. Okay. So, yeah. so I think in, in terms of getting, starting that process is, is really think about your proposition. Yeah. And, and if there's, you know, what's the story behind the brand? If it's about you and your brand, ultimately there's, you know, someone has to be the face of a brand. The face of it, story. Yeah. What, what are you passionate about? How do you find though, like, let's say somebody goes the white labeling route and they're trying, cause I always think about what problem are you solving, but I'm a service-based entrepreneur mostly. Right. right? And so it's, it's a little bit easier, but when we think about products and, you know, you are white labeling, let's say a CBD product, how do you actually set yourself apart from the rest when the product actually is the same? Is it more storytelling? Is it more really kind of focusing, maybe diving deeper into who exactly you are solving that problem for or not who, I guess who, like, would you go directly maybe to women or elderly people? Is that when you really want to focus niche in to really say that's your differentiator because the product essentially is going to be the same. The well, consumer might not know that though. No. Yeah. The consumer generally doesn't know that. Right. That's um, the know. game's lost. Then. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and that's the same for lots, like I mentioned beer, right. But there are lots of other like wine, you know, lots Coffee. of other chocolate products. Like, I mean, yeah. loads of them are, are the same. Right. So, or very similar, you know, ingredients, same amount of sugar, same amount of cocoa, like yeah. with some slight tweaks, maybe it is a slightly different text, whatever. So, you know, you're telling the story. If you think about the difference between, like, say, with take chocolate, for example, mm -hmm. you know, the two probably main sort of plain chocolate bars here in the UK would be Cadbury's and Galaxy. Okay. Right? And so there's a big like how Galaxy was all about being smooth. Right. And this is a whole advert. Like when I was a kid growing up, their adverts were all about like, you know, smooth. And they had like ladies with, you know, beautiful skin and this soft silk running across. <laughs> oh, so smooth galaxy. Oh. Right. But that's ultimately like it's just a slightly different version of chocolate. But they've yeah. set themselves ap apart and they charge a little bit more money. Mm. They used to, you know, it's all the same now, but they used to charge a bit more because it had that slightly premium feel to it. It was a more, you know, and if you, some people didn't like it, but for me, I prefer Galaxy. So, yeah. you know, I like that, that the, the, the texture and, and how it feels. But that's what they're selling is this smooth, you know, lovely, smooth feeling to the top. And that's how they differentiate themselves. And that's that's a massive global brand. So the, the mechanics are the same, whether yeah. you're a startup CBD brand or you're a chocolate company or you're a beer company. What's the story behind the brand? It doesn't have to necessarily be about you. You know, you, you could, as you say, it's really about the most effective thing, I think, is picking a demographic. Yeah. And, and and what's the story, you know, that you're telling about the brand 
for that demographic. Yeah. Because you can really target, like social media platforms now enable you, it's hard with CBD, but with other products, you know, you can quite easily target those demographics. So it makes it much easier to tell your story directly to your demographic. Yeah. You know, and nowadays, and that's, so that's, but the, the thing has to make sense and flow through. And when they come to your website, they have, you have, the language has to. The value proposition has to hit them, identifying kind of what they're looking for. And this is like something I teach in, in the Startup Accelerator, because it's like, you can have the demographics, but that's when psychographics really come into play. Because if somebody is looking for something to feel warm or cozy versus, you know, feeling high in adrenaline, like you are going to have a completely different value proposition for that person. Yes. Yeah, it's isn't it fascinating? Because it's like, I think what happens and I was, I was guilty of this for a very long time is like, oh, but I have an offering, I want to solve it for everybody. And because you might have because you want to change the world, you have all these like, desires, right? But when you serve everybody, you're really just serving nobody because it's right. confusing. Yeah, so I think nowadays, look, you you're, you're, yeah, it's, I'm trying to sort of think about if you take, for example, like sports clothing, I know like my team are sick of me talking about Gymshark, but um, <laughs> it's really interesting because, you know, they've started eight years ago and they've grown into like a, a you know, a billion dollar yeah. company in terms of valuation, the revenue, hundreds of millions every, you know, every month. So they're, they're a massive company, but they've, they've, they've grown so effectively because they, the founders are their market. Mm. They are their their own consumer. Yeah, and they're they've you know really driven the business for their own demographic and their own consumer, and they're starting to broaden that community, right? So they've like that was their core market, and what mm. they've widened their product range, generically sort of to to the wider sports clothing market, and because they sell direct, you know, to the consumer, they've got higher margins, which enable them to to keep funding aggressive marketing campaigns, and they got brand ambassadors on board from that sort of weightlifting and conditioning community um, that really sort of gave them lots of traction early doors. So I think that like, and that's in a market that's really competitive already. So like Adidas, Nike, yeah. Under Armour, Reebok, Kappa. I mean, like there, there are loads in, certainly in Europe, all these, you know, sports clothing companies and they just like, they just, you know, went through it like a dose of the salts, as we yeah. would say here, you know, they really did. And so that's, that's the, the benefit of, being really clear and if it's your consumer even better um then because you know that's your personal you understand that consumer really well but if it's not your consumer and you're just picking a demographic well make sure you have really good feedback from you know people in that demographic so that what you present the story you're presenting the language that you're representing to them that you that you're integrating with them is makes a lot of sense to them and sort of engages them and gets the conversion so it's one thing you know, yeah. to get people thinking, oh, this is interesting. You know, this looks like the right kind of thing for me. And then they really go, yes, that's like, oh, hitting all the buzzwords. Then yes. you're getting the click and buy, right? So the price has to be right and, and all that stuff. So Yeah, you have to know their purchasing archetype, all of that. Because, yeah, when you're direct to consumer or anything online, you really have to make that that click, that actual purchase, if it was maybe they had been so aware of you through brand ambassadors, whatever touch points they had, but the moment that they come to that website, that to me is the most valuable thing. Cause if you're losing them, they're probably not going to come yeah. back or maybe yeah. not for a long time. Right. Yeah. So you take, for example, with elite growth, um, our first retail brand is Georgia botanicals. Okay. So yes, tell us about this. After, yeah, co-founder Robin, um, his daughter, Georgia was one of the first 
um, prescriptions in the UK in 2018. So she had um, a chromosome deletion that resulted mm. in severe epilepsy. And I think when she was like 10 months old, he was told that she was going to die basically to say goodbye to her oh at the foot God. of her bed, you know, which is just horrendous. But he fought, you know, um, for a second opinion. They wouldn't give it to him. He had mm. to take her to the US, to Boston to get, and they did scans. And, and you know, he was told in Belfast that her, her brain was decaying, which it wasn't, you know. So the scans in Boston said, it's nonsense. We're going to try some additional wow. treatments and the CBD treatment really worked and it's gone from there. And so now she's, you know, five years old almost and, and you know, thriving and, you know, going through physical therapy, trying to learn to walk to, you know, all that kind of stuff, you know, which is was just amazing really what the, the plant, um, the compounds in the plant are able to do for people. Yeah. And despite, the, you know, the resistance from the system and something we're still fighting through the Georgia Foundation here in the UK and I, like Robin was on Sky News this morning having a debate um, about the medical legislation and access for patients. It's it's just ridiculous. So no more situation. But, so we've created Georgia Botanicals as a brand, as a kind of, you know, for her legacy and mm. something that will fund um, proportion of the profits of that go to fund clinical trials for kids to access medicines and treatments and therapies. Um, and so, yeah, we wanted to create a legacy for her and that will secure her future because she will need 24 hour care probably for the rest of her life. So, um, which that's important. So we have that story really behind the brand, right? Which yeah, is Georgia. Yeah. And the difference to, as an example, given the discussion we've just had is that we're, it's a, it's a family focused brand. So there, this doesn't exist. There are hundreds of brands in the UK and um, not many of them are specific to certain demographics. And we are very careful about how we, you know, set up each brand. And yeah. so we've got like three Georgia botanicals. We're doing a vaping brand and we'll have a sports brand as well. Mm -hmm. so very, very focused on certain demographics or certain sectors of the market. And so the family brand will be the first one that's really like it has child safe products. So we'll okay. be probably the first company to have to advertise child safe CBD products in the UK, mm -hmm. which I think is a big step and, and quite good to do. Yeah. And then also as a brand ambassador, I think we should be announcing today or tomorrow that we have Amy Childs from The Only Way is Essex. Um, coming on board as a creative director for Georgia Botanicals. Um, and then we'll be launching a, a signature line, uh, probably this is ahead of time, but like we're, uh, we'll be we'll be launching a line of products with Amy, which will be more adult female focused. Yeah. So those kind of, you know, and this is where we have, you know, a good high quality, reliable family focused and child safe products under the standard Georgia line. And under the signature line, we have more sort of luxury um, treatment products like, you know, bath bombs and, you know, day cream, night cream, face serum, that kind of stuff that, you know, that are, they'll be priced at a, at a, at a slightly above market rate um, yeah. because they're very high quality ingredients. And because we know that um, there are, you know, there is a sector of the market that will really, you know, buys into the quality and the fact that, you know, Amy doesn't put her name on something that, that isn't, you know, the best product out there as far as she's concerned. So, you know, that's we're we're being very specific about the price structure, about what the brand means, the story behind it, how we present it, all yeah. of that stuff. So I just thought it was interesting to given that conversation, talk about how we sort of put that proposition together. Yeah, thank you. And it's also about maintaining the integrity of it, right? I think that's what you're very good at is that you really think things through before you execute them and yeah. making sure that it all kind of ties in. It's building that foundation. Yeah, it's like 
brands are so important um, in, in in terms of the context of the company. So like, you know, we, we elite activists is our retail arm of the business mm-hmm. and the brands will sit under that company. We could have gone with elite activists as a brand. If something goes wrong with our vape brand, we don't want it to bring everything else down. Right. So yeah. kind of like you have to think about how you st- structure those brands within the context of a wider organization. That's what you're doing. But yeah, the brand has to make sense. The story you're telling um, has to be, you have to be able to be consistent as you move forward. And look, you're not going to know what's coming five, 10 years down the line. You know, I was um, having a message conversation with uh, Chief Strategy Officer Jonathan um, last night about um, sort of Nike, the clothing companies, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, how the impact of the Black Lives Matter thing has, you know, impact them in, in a negative way, right? Yeah. Like as much coming out in support of that is, politicize the brand and for better or for worse you know some people don't like the fact that they've got involved in the political side of it Mm -hmm. some people unfortunately probably don't like the fact that they've supported black lives matter so you know it's kind of like you don't know what's going to happen in the future but you have to be able to be consistent with your brand and you know where where these companies use really low-cost production factories and they're charging top dollar you know in like wherever india africa you know where people are are being effectively abused with you know slightly above slave labor potentially and yet you're out there you know supporting black lives matter you know you have to be really careful so that what your brand stands for and the story you're telling that you can maintain that consistently with whatever might come down the road and then be really careful about where you get involved in in, in these in politics situations, you know? yeah I mean it's a it's a very interesting thing especially for bigger corporations you know I think that, that I guess that's a big conversation like just diversity and inclusion right like how do you you know build a brand that that's like that's all I care about is building a brand that is like inclusive to everything but yeah, yeah if you're at the very top of something and you're affecting so many people with different political views and different backgrounds. It's uh, yeah, it's really I think up to the the business owner. But in case of a publicly traded company, is it up to the shareholders? Like it's that goes into so many big questions. Yeah, look, I think in theory, your track record of behavior and mm-hmm. how you deal with your suppliers, you know, with your staff with your clients your customers yeah. you know if you've got a good track record of of handling all of those relationships in yeah. the right way then you know that's that i think is all that should matter really and that if it's consistent with your brand ideals and the story you're telling then you shouldn't really have any issues whatever's going on socially because if right. you treat people equally you treat people fairly whatever the whatever the situation then you're, it's hard to come unstuck if you always approach it with, you know, take the right approach, treat people fairly and equally in all situations, then, yeah. you know, it's hard for people to, to kind of pick you apart, really. Yeah. Oh, my God. So true. I can't believe I looked at the clock. I'm like, we have to go towards the speed round. But I think we're going to have so much more to unpack again. Yeah. What, you know, quickly, so you kind of walked us through just to finish your timeline, right? So you launched, you, you started kind of your own entrepreneurial kind of company. I know that right now you're in the process of even, you know, focusing on other things. So give us just the quick, you know, fast forward to when you started elite, you know, 
Oh, so, like your elite brands. Yeah, like in terms of the context for the the, the cannabis sector, I guess. Yeah. As it is today, um, you know, we, like I said, we started 2015, 2016, and and we um, we had a company that was focused on you know import and distribution, and uh, we had contracts with suppliers, and we worked with a couple of people to try and raise money and that, that wanted to acquire that company. It didn't quite work out in the end. We had another company that was focused around sort of genetics and um, developing genetics and um, for cultivators and then sort of um, monetizing that over the long term, sort of plugging it into the distribution business. Um, and so those things are like, we're not, yeah, because acquisitions didn't happen, right? For various reasons. Yeah. And the didn't happen for various reasons. So we kind of like muddled through then, you know, we were kind of like separating, you know, sort of dividing assets with our existing partners and stuff, which is one of those sort of difficult things that happens sometimes where yeah. things don't quite work out. But if you find an amicable way, amicable way forward, you know, try not to burn any bridges in life because yeah. ultimately you never know when that bridge might come in use. Exactly. Um, and, and then, you know, the pandemic happened. So we kind of like through a friend, of a uh, partner of mine, we ended up, doing some PPE transactions and stuff, which was really helpful. Give us some cash flow at the time, you know, face masks and whatever. Although it was like mental stressful at the time. Like I, I thought it was working hard before and then it was doing like 20 hour days for like four months. It was insane. I was working in pajamas for a week. Just oh my God. Never stop. Cause you're dealing with China, like at that time of the day and US in the evening and oh, it was just, and everyone was like going crazy. You know, there was so much pressure on. There's so much like fraud going on. So everyone was like, oh God, it was crazy. Oh, wow. But that's really like the compliance side and the distribution, you know, all those skill sets <clears throat> come into play in those situations. So it was helpful. It didn't, you know, change our lives, but it helped keep us going for a while. And then sort of post, we'd been, you know, doing some kind of consulting sales work in the midst of all of that, keeping, you know, sort of in the same yeah. <clears throat> And then came out of the pandemic and, was working with Robin, my co-founder. Um, he'd been working for a company called Brains Biocytical, who are an API manufacturer here in the UK. And he ended up leaving them. And we'd been doing a few bits and pieces together and just said, look, we need to kind of solidify what we're doing. You know, he had some stuff with Georgia brand and mm -hmm. some other relationships. And, you know, and I had the distribution network and all that kind of stuff and, and MGC relationship, whatever. So we just thought like, you know, we should, we need to solidify this, put together. So we decided to form elite growth. And so under that, we've sectioned out the, the pharmaceutical clinical development distribution. So we're working with MGC to try and establish, you know, their epilepsy trials yeah. and they've got some other products in the pipeline. So for Alzheimer's, which is like really exciting. It's a very exciting. Based with no real, treatment solution at the moment so it's yeah. these are you know big opportunities but they take time to build out and it's kind of a long-term partnership with companies like that um and on the retail side you know we've got the georgia brand coming soon we're, we're the vape brand should be within a few months ready to launch um and the sports brand similar situation and then we're potentially all being well we should be um entering into a, an agreement with mgc for manufacturing of APIs in Malta and they have a facility there. So we'll, we'll implement an API production facility, which again is like a huge sector in, in terms of, you know, clinical trial development is sort of restricted on certain things when yeah. you know, THC is so expensive. And the only real version that exists is a, 
<clears throat> at the moment is a synthetic, really, at, at sort of any kind of reasonable price. So if we can do that on scale, and then things like CBN, which yeah, right, for anesthesia, for sleep, for the things, you know, as well as CBG and CBC, and 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 you know many others that will, you know, and ultimately, like I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea of a single compound product. By the way, yeah, yeah, you know, I, agree. I, I don't subscribe to a whole plant product potentially, like really either. Um, you know, I don't see how 150 compound products is in any way kind of consistent or effective like mm. you're not you don't know right <laughs> what's actually working in that so yeah I think when, something, something where you have like maybe you know four or five compounds you know what i mean working together and you know what mechanisms they're acting on and and they're in certain proportions for for the right reasons that to me is kind of the way forward and so the way we look at the kind of medical market is there will be a, a leader that will kind of open the door to the, the validating the efficacy for treatment of a certain right. condition. So if we take, you know, the um, Cognican product from MGC for Alzheimer's, so whatever, let's say it's for the sake of argument, 15% THC and 5% CBD for the sake of argument, I can't remember exactly what it is, but let's say we get that through marketing authorization that's validated, that will like start people prescribing the product in, in a much bigger way in terms of specialist physicians and GPs all across the UK. That might not be perfect for everybody, right? But if it shows some form of efficacy, then the physician's gonna be more open to titrating to a variation of that product, which is where the specialist medicines comes in because you mm. can say, oh, well, we're gonna tweak that, right? And you might have 10 other variations of the product which are considered special. So the AMA gets most of the prescriptions, that product will get the, the large volume initially, but ultimately what will follow behind that is a variety of products that are maybe tweaked to suit certain people's needs. And like research over time will show and um, what those wide when, compounds are working with certain types of people. Ultimately, that's what it comes down to is your physiological system works in a certain way because of you know your your genetics etc yeah yeah very interesting well thank you for joining this was like we got to talk a lot about a lot but we didn't get to dive into a lot um you know i think the the coolest thing just to kind of recap what we were just saying is that you have a skill set and relationships are so so fundamental to being able to pivot like cannabis is an industry where you it's so nascent it's so young it's still emerging it's going to be that way for a long time it's highly regulated but it's not like it's just it's just uh it's a hard industry to be in and i think the big takeaway even just chatting with you with this one obviously it's building that brand it's having a story behind that brand but from the back end from a leadership perspective it's really making sure that you feel comfortable with the sales, with understanding business, but being able to build strong relationships. So if you need to adjust or pivot, which most startups do, that you can easily go into that. Like it's an easy transition, although it could be hard. You will have that back, I guess, back to the very beginning of studying biology and science is having that process to be able to do it. Yeah, for sure. I think like, you know, in terms of if you're going to start a business in this sector, as we yeah. said before, look at starting, you know, if you're a one person company and you yeah. think you want to do something, um, then, you know, start a brand, start local, get some revenue behind you, you know, start with a contract manufacturer, but, you know, really think your brand process through, get that set up and then you'll have someone 
that will be able to produce that for you, you know, invest in an initial stock, go sell your stock, go to, you know, build some relationships with retail, like talk yeah. to the REIT before you go ordering the stock, you know, go and talk to retail, you know, present the brands of people, talk to some people you can build key retailers, you can build relationships with and really understand the market. Like as a distributor, um, that's something that's absolutely key when you're trying to bring new products to market is because you're in it, yeah, and you're already like we we would have been selling us Hydrogarden sells thousands of products across every sector. The subsequent company I worked with, we we were a lot more niche and high end, but you know we knew the market inside out, right? So it's easy then to kind of go right. Well, here's a, there's an opening for a product here at this price point, you know, with these you know whatever USPs. And um, when you're sort of new to the market, you really have to try and understand it. And there's like your local market, whether it's in a state or in a country. Or with national market, you know, if you're thinking like, okay, I'm, I'm in Washington and I want to launch a, a CBD brand, well, you need to understand one where are the sales is online. Can you sell it online? Yeah. You know, do you need retailers and where are those retailers? Who are they? Can I go and talk to them to understand? Will they give me some, you know, some of their time to help me understand the market? Um, and if you, in my experience, if you have the right attitude and people can see that you mean well, they'll happily give you some time, you know what I mean, to, to yeah. chat about like what their problems are. Everyone's going to tell you what their problems are. Yeah. <laughs> People love speaking talking about their problems. And being a good sales is listening. hundred percent, right? And that's like, you, like my first few weeks in 2008 was like just going in, introducing myself and listening. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. These, and people will tell you, like they'll tell you their problems. They'll tell you about what difficulties they have, what they like, what they don't like. You know, and so if you take that, you do that for a couple of months, you find out pretty quickly and you're able to analyze that and go, right, this is these are the points that I need to hit to yeah. have a successful product for people, these people to to want to buy one, the product and be to do business with me to to kind of behave in a certain and act in a certain way and um, that people enjoy doing business. So you make it easy for them, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Liam, thank you so much for joining. How can people find you, connect with you and all the stuff that you're working on? So I'm on LinkedIn, obviously, Liam McGreevy. Um, I have an Instagram handle. Uh, it's my name in Irish, Liam McGreevy. I think I'm on I'm on Twitter as well. Okay. Uh, I think it's the same name, so I can send you those handles. Okay, yeah, send me those and I'll put them in the show notes. Thank you for joining. I had, it was a great conversation. Thanks so much for listening to this week's show. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this, leave us a five-star review. Make sure that you share this episode on your social media and tag us in the Instagram stories. You can find us wherever you go on social media. Just look up Cannabis Business Minds. Have an idea for the show or something that you want to talk about? Shoot us an email at podcast at cannabisbusinessminds.com.